On this week's edition of New York Now, Tuesday was primary day in New York with incumbents defeated in two of the state's larger cities. Meanwhile, Governor Cuomo's emergency powers are no more, but what does that mean for New Yorkers? Bernadette Hogan from The Post is here to talk about those stories. Then, Vin Bonventry from Albany Law School tells us what to expect from the newest judges to join New York's Court of Appeals. And later, we'll talk about the future of the New York Health Act. I'm Daryl Camp, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass a legislation we will pass a law that prohibiting it, it, and we will take them to court challenging it. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Daryl Camp, in for Dan Clark. So we won't have finalized results in the New York City mayoral primary for a couple of weeks, partially due to a system called ranked choice voting. That's where voters rank their top five candidates, with the lowest scoring candidate being eliminated in each round until someone gets above 50% of the vote. Meanwhile, in Buffalo, Mayor Byron Brown was upset in the Democratic primary by challenger India Walton, and in Rochester, incumbent Lovely Warren was defeated by Malik Evans. Then, the day after the primary, Governor Cuomo announced that he'd be allowing his emergency powers granted by the legislature at the start of the pandemic to expire. But that could impact certain businesses. So now, to break down those stories, we have Bernadette Hogan from the New York Post. How are you? Good. How are you? I am fantastic. So I was thrown off, honestly, the most by Byron Brown. He's been around for over a decade in Buffalo, and he's a strong Cuomo ally, and he was upset. Why did that happen? Right. As you said, Byron Brown, this would have been his fifth term, right? He's been in office quite a while, Democrat, uh, establishment Democrat. And he was upset by India Walton, someone that was endorsed by the WFP and the DSA, so the Democratic Socialists of America, someone that's definitely more to the left as opposed to Byron Brown, who, as you said, a, a, an ally of Governor Cuomo and who did serve also as the chairman of the state Democratic Party. This was a big deal because Byron Brown wouldn't engage in debates with India Walton despite multiple attempts to have that kind of, you know, interplay of ideas and also just give voters a chance to figure out, hmm, maybe we want to, you know, know who this other person that is challenging the, Byron Brown, who's been in office a while. So that was a big upset, especially considering if you look at voter turnout, the primaries in New York, we have a closed primary state. So really at the end of the day, that's that's what matters. So and Democrats do decide those votes, especially in these upstate cities where there is a majority of Democratic uh, registered voto, uh, voters. Mm -hmm. And so this this was a big deal because India Walton will be the first um, socialist, uh, you know, more left leaning uh, Democrat in a while to to run a major city. But at the end of the day, Byron Brown wasn't engaging in in normal tactics again. He was not. Uh, he, he thought that he could just go right in and not have to engage with his opponent. And maybe maybe voters were sick of that. I'm yeah, they m very well may have been. But in mm -hmm. Rochester, it was far less surprising because when you have lovely Warren, who is uh, she's gotten bad press lately because of things surrounding her. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is having personal issues right now. Far less surprising that Malik Evans was able to uh, win that one there. And in cities where, Albany is one of them, where the Democratic primary is often the general election, this was more important than I think a lot of people realized. Also, speaking of the primary, in New York City, we had ranked choice voting. 
it is a system that confuses everyone, even journalists, and there are already delays because of absentee ballots. How much longer are we expecting to wait until we know who officially, I know Eric Adams is the favorite, but who officially will be the next New York City mayor? Right. As you said, we still have to wait on a, a whole host of absentee ballots that need to be counted. And as you also said, ranked choice voting is new in the city, and this is something that has been conf confusing voters, journalists alike, et cetera. It's even myself, my colleagues in the city with the New York Post did a fantastic job figuring this out. But right now, as you said, Eric Adams, he was a former um, NYPD cop. Uh, I think you know he was he was higher up. He also served as a New York State senator, and he was Bronx or not Bronx. Brooklyn Borough president. And he ran a campaign that really, right now, if you're looking at where uh, who, who went for him, who ended up voting for him, he's captured large swaths of the Bronx, uh, Brooklyn, and he right now is in the lead. And behind him is Catherine Garcia. She was the sanitation commissioner of the city of New York. Maya Wiley, who also served in the de Blasio administration. Those two women are in second place on this ranked choice voter structure. And in order for them to potentially overcome Eric Adams, who has a commanding lead right now of about nine, ten points, the way that the system is set up is they would have to, you know, one or the other would have to gain a majority of these absentee or, or uh, I suppose, second place mm -hmm. um, finishing spots to overtake Eric Adams. And Adams is interesting because he's somebody that, again, he's, he's really made crime and public safety a big part of his campaign. As the governor has talked about recently as well. Right. And, and truly, like, if we're talking about establishment candidates and upsets, I mean, he's somebody that New Yorkers or New York City um, in, uh, citizens we're really gravitating towards, especially as the city is trying to get back from the last year of the pandemic, mm -hmm. just ravishing the city. And also we have seen a spike in crime in New York City, as well as, you know, those other cities across the state. Yep. But it's 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 definitely an interesting system that we're going to have to figure out and see see how that works, because then we go to the general and there's there's months between. And it now doesn't and really look like that's going to make its way upstate. So the last thing we have time for is the governor. The governor says. I'm not going to even attempt to renew my emergency powers, but there were ramifications. A lot of restaurant owners are saying, hey, alcohol to go is something we loved and we can't do that anymore. So in a sense, did we successfully sell salt to a slug here? The, the people that were calling for his emergency powers to be removed, are they now rethinking that? Well, so the emergency powers allowed the governor to issue a whole host of executive orders, right, that did change. It just made it easier for him to make changes to manage the pandemic. And some of those things assisted with businesses that were already, you know, losing, either were closed, were losing revenue hand over fist. And one of those big points, like you just said, is this alcohol to go measure, which permitted the state to just rewrite uh, the laws on the books that the state liquor authority has had on for years and years that banned restaurants and bars from selling cocktails to go. And that's a problem because, again, restaurants are still struggling. However, the legislature could have passed a bill that would have cemented that and changed the current statute without the governor's emergency powers. And it's definitely possible within the next session cycle or you know, next year, though, so it'll take some time. But overall, county leaders have said that these emergency powers, these executive orders, have been problematic and potentially unconstitutional. You know, they just released a, a new book that county leaders were saying, we were fighting with these directives, 
the entire way when the governor would announce them to the point where we would have to implement them in the community because, again, it changed the way that they operated with local government. So something like alcohol to go is definitely an important measure, but at the end of the day, what this does is it brings the power back or it, it provides more of an equal balance between how local governments can handle their communities and then mm -hmm. the interplay with the state, which is in constant communication. Well, there is always more we can talk about, but we are fresh out of time. Bernadette Hogan from The Post, I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. So we told you a few weeks ago about the two new judges confirmed by the Senate to the State Court of Appeals, New York's highest court. And when we talk about judges on the U.S. Supreme Court, there are usually questions about their ideologies and how they'll influence the court's decisions. The same is true in New York, where judges on the Court of Appeals have a lot of power to interpret and change state law. And the two newest judges on the court could make a huge difference in that moving forward. For more on that, our Dan Clark turned this week to Vin Bonventry, our Court of Appeals expert from Albany Law School. Vin Bonventry from Albany Law School, glad to have you back. Always great to be with you, Dan. Absolutely. So we're talking about the Court of Appeals again, obviously. Now the two judges that the governor has picked have been confirmed by the Senate, so they will start serving on the Court of Appeals immediately. They don't actually have session for a little bit. But I want to talk first, I want to go through both of the judges that were confirmed. Let's talk about Madeline Singas first, because she caused more controversy than Anthony yes. Canataro, the other nominee. And that's because she is the former Nassau County DA. So Vin, how do you see her shifting the court? We talked before about how this is a, a conservative court in terms of New York conservatism. Yes. But do you see her shifting that more towards that conservative side? Well, Dan, you know, when she's on the court, she'll be wearing a robe. She'll be at the pinnacle of the legal profession. You know, it's not as though there will be aspirations on her part to go higher than that. And so you don't know. We've had prosecutors in the past who've turned out to be some of the very finest judges on the Court of Appeals in its history. Having said that, Having said that, yeah, you know, there's always the but. There's always the but. <laughs> there's always the but. And, you know, as, as a total nerd and geek about the Court of Appeals, I look into these things. I, I just don't see anything obvious in Madeline Singus's record to suggest that she's well qualified to be on a court of last resort. She might be. And it could be that... The governor has some insights about her. Maybe Chief Judge Janet DeFiori knows her well and knows about her. I'm just saying on the record, it's certainly not evident. And it wasn't evident to most of the bar associations right. around the state. I mean, she was barely approved. And some of the bar associations said, no, not approved. And they argued that she ought to be rejected. So. We're not talking about whether she will be a great judge. And of course, we hope she will be a great judge. But there's nothing in the public record that would suggest that. Right. The New York State Bar Association, when um, when they were developing the lists of the nominees and they went out, the Bar Association evaluated them as qualified or highly qualified. And Madeline Singas did not get the highly qualified. And I think that said a lot to the various uh, legal groups that 
to take a closer look at her and maybe see like what's on the record about her. But on that note, Chief Judge Janet DeFiori was a prosecutor when she was nominated. She was the yes. Westchester County District Attorney. Did we see her shift the court to the more conservative side when she came in or was it kind of going that way already? No, under Jonathan Lippman, the court was pretty bold, pretty progressive. Uh, Janet DeFiori has been much more conservative, at least in criminal cases, not necessarily in the, on the social issues, but certainly in the criminal cases, she has been much more pro-prosecution than he was. Uh, so there's been quite a shift in the court over the last several years. And it's not just the decisions of the court, but the kinds of cases and the number of cases that the court is accepting for review. So for example, the court today, the judges on the court are accepting about one third the number of criminal appeals that they did when Lippman happened to be chief. Right, so it went from an average of about 90 a year, that is that the judges would accept for appeal, now down to about 30. So, you know, that's quite extraordinary. And that's why the criminal defense bar is so upset about Cuomo nominating Madeline Singus because they figure she's gonna be another pro-prosecution judge who again is not going to give the opportunity to criminal defense lawyers to have their cases heard at the Court of Appeals. It's fascinating. And I want to switch gears to the new other judge, Anthony yes. Canataro. Uh, he has been on the bench. He was previously, before he was confirmed, yes. the administrative judge of the New York City Civil Court. So that's obviously a much different position than what Madeline Singas was in. And unlike her, he was determined to be highly qualified by those bar associations. So how do we see him shifting the court? And when we talked before, it was it was more of like these judges that were retiring were kind of like in the middle. So, and I see him yes. as maybe being the same way, but I'd like to hear you on that. It's just not clear about him now. You know, he's the second openly gay judge to have been appointed to the Court of Appeals. And many of us celebrate that because of the savage discrimination historically. And, you know, the Court of Appeals until recently has not particularly been great with regard to fighting discrimination. He also served as a law clerk to a judge on the Court of Appeals and a quite liberal, socially and politically liberal judge. That's Carmen Saparic. So in terms of qualifications, let's start with that. His record shows that he probably understands the importance of a court of last resort and how decisions are actually made, right? And he's been a judge, so he knows the role of a neutral judge. And uh, like the bar associations that rated him much more favorably than they did Madeline Singus, it seems from his record that he probably is gonna do a pretty darn good job at the Court of Appeals. He also studied the classics at Columbia as an undergrad, which to me is a definite positive. <laughs> <laughs> so the Court of Appeals doesn't meet again until late August, early September, right? Yes. So it'll be really interesting to see when that happens, because that's gonna be the first opportunity for us to see yes. how these two judges act when they're hearing these yes. arguments. And unlike the US Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals in New York actually w live streams on the web their arguments. So anybody watching this, I would encourage them to take that's a look. Right. It's really interesting. But 
We do have to leave it there. Vin Bonventry from Albany Law School, thank you so much, as always, for your analysis. And thanks for inviting me, Dan. We'll keep an eye on where those judges land when the Court of Appeals comes back in late August. In the meantime, the debate over New York's health care system came to a standstill earlier this month when the legislature decided not to pass the New York Health Act. The New York Health Act would essentially set up a single-payer health care system in New York, like a Medicare for All approach. A few weeks ago, we gave you one side of that issue. This week, we're showing you the other. Our Dan Clark spoke with two supporters of that bill, Senator Jabari Brisport from Brooklyn and Elizabeth Benjamin from the Community Service Society of New York. Senator Jabari Brisport and Elizabeth Benjamin from the Community Service Society of New York, thank you both so much for being here. Thanks, Dan. Of course. Thank you. Anytime. So Senator Brisport, I want to go to you first. The legislative session has ended. The New York Health Act did not pass. Why do you think that is? Because for the first time, we have a majority of Democrats in both chambers that have signed on to the bill. So why aren't we seeing it move? There were a confluence of factors that worked together to stall and stop the New York Health Act from coming to a vote. I would say outside pressures came from lobbyist groups that shared misleading information about job loss and increased premiums. There was also um, outside influence against the Health Act from some public sector unions, like my own former union, the UFT, which supported uh, the New York Health Act in 2015, but whose leadership um, was very against it now. Um, there were also, just on the inside, um, some legislators who had co-sponsored the Health Act, but then um, asked leadership not to bring it to a vote and um, ultimately the decision fell on leadership to choose to bring it to a vote or not to, and she chose not to. And in the assembly, you know, the speaker chose not to. So it's like we're seeing a situation where people publicly support it, but privately are saying hold off, is that correct? Yes. So I wanna come back to that if we have time, but I wanna to go to Elizabeth first, because as we talk about the politics of this, I think the policy of it is very important. So. The New York Health Act would create a uh, single-payer system in New York, but a lot of people may not know what that means. So let's start broad. If I'm just a regular New Yorker, I have my private insurance, or maybe I don't even have insurance, how would my life change under the New York Health Act? What would I be looking at? Sure. I mean, you're depending on who you are, your your life would change not so much, but or it would change a lot. But in any event, it would be better. Um, and this is why. If you're uninsured, you would have health insurance because every single person in New York State who's a resident of New York State, regardless of immigration status, if you're a resident, you would be eligible. So we have a million people that would instantly get covered. Fantastic. If you are someone who's on Medicaid or Medicare right now, if you're on Medicare right now, the program for the older folks, you would get dental and vision. That's better. But otherwise, it would basically be the same thing. It's the same kind of coverage we're talking about. It's really Medicare for all. I think single payer doesn't really make a lot of sense to people. It's really a Medicare for all type of program. The third thing is if you have job-based coverage, you're probably facing a deductible right now. And you every year, more and more of your salary goes to paying for health insurance premiums. They, you know, we get more co-pays, higher deductibles, and more cost sharing being put upon um, the employees. And if you're an employer, you know, you just look and like this, they just filed their rate request for next year, even though they all made, the insurance companies made out like bandits last year because no one used healthcare, they're asking for 9% rate increases. Why? So, you know, we have this just uncontrollable cost spiral up that needs to be regulated. One great way to do it is through the New York Health Act. 
there's other great ways you could do, you know, hospital price regulation, you could do global payments. But the New York Health Act is the best because it solves all those problems. Less bureaucracy for people, less cost sharing for people, um, less headache for employers to have to deal with brokers and whatnot, and, you know, um, and more cost controls. So people would be paying nothing out of pocket, including that premium that might be coming out of their paycheck right now. And we also wouldn't have network restrictions. So like, for example, me, I look up which doctors I can go to and which ones are not going to take my insurance that would be eliminated under the New York Health Act. But I think something that people get hung up on is they're paying their premium right now and that would be eliminated under the New York Health Act, but it'd be replaced by a payroll tax for people making above $25,000. Uh, I wanna stick with you, Elizabeth, just for a second. So do we know if generally people would be paying less under the New York Health Act on that payroll tax than they're paying for their premiums for healthcare? I mean, I, as I understand it, and please correct me, Senator Brisport, if I have this wrong, but most people would be paying no more than they are what they are currently paying. I think some of the higher income people might pay a little bit more. Is that right, Senator Brisport? That's, that's correct. The vast majority of New Yorkers would see the same or less in, in annual payments to what for health insurance. So to that point, Senator Brisport, how do you convince people that single-payer health care is the way to go in New York? I feel like just the concept of single-payer has just become so political, both in New York and in the country, where people hear single-payer and they're just immediately turned off by it. So how do you convince people that that would be the way to go and have this fundamental change in New York? I think the biggest thing is convincing people that health care and insurance are not the same thing. You know, you tell people that their insurance might change and they automatically, they freak out. They think, oh, I might not be able to see my current doctor. But that's the thing. People like their doctors. They don't like they necessarily like their insurance provider. And it's important to hammer home that the New York Health Act, any single payer program or Medicare for, program would expand options. You'd be able to see your same doctor and also other doctors by eliminating in-network, in out-of-network um, restrictions. I'd like to also just jump in here. I mean, everybody likes their health insurance fine when they're not sick, but no one likes our healthcare system when you are. And let me tell you why. It's not just the insurance companies. Insurance companies are part of the problem, but also the providers. They bill you. We have one guy that went in for one kidney stone and came out with 28 different bills. Mm. That would not happen under the New York Health Act. Like one kidney stone does not, you know, a, a bill from the anesthesiologist mm -hmm. and the surgeon and that, you know, it goes on and on and on. And so we talk, we need to talk about how to make our program, our whole health insurance and healthcare system more simple for people. This is an amazing way to do that through the New York Health Act. There are many other ways too. Patient Medical Debt Protection Act, which also did not pass this session, um, would be a good start. We need to start thinking, doing, we need to do something because the system right now is broken from the patient's perspective. So Senator Brisport, for New Yorkers that are not insured, where would this legislation leave them if it passes? Uh, it would bring them into uh, the fold and bring them into having health insurance. And why I'm so scared right now is that, well, one, we have a million New Yorkers that are uninsured, but then millions more who are underinsured. And it's scary for people who are in either of those categories who will be experiencing long-term effects of COVID, who are locked into a dangerous job because they want the health insurance. I'm scared for women who are just staying in abusive relationships because they need the health insurance from their partner. There are a lot of people that could be freed and liberated from this legislation if it passes. And that's the, another reason why we should be doing it. So the premise of this next question is going to sound horrible. So I apologize to people that are watching for this. So under the New York Health Act, 
everybody's going to be covered and there will be no restrictions in terms of coverage and what doctors you can see and where you can go. Elizabeth, do we in New York have the healthcare infrastructure to support that, support people that may seek the medical care that they were afraid to seek now under yeah. their current insurance coverage? This is the pent up demand argument. So <laughs> and so there's this big worry that, you know, there's all this uh, pent up demand. Well, we had that same argument in when we enacted the Affordable Care Act. Everybody said there'd be huge lines and people wouldn't, there weren't on the primary care doctors and there would be, you know, the whole system would be shot. Well, guess what? We implemented the New York, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, no problems, no lines, no complaints. The only things were, you know, like a little couple of like things on the margins, but this pent up demand that they all said would be there wasn't there. It just doesn't exist because you know what? People don't, it's not like people sit on, you know, on July 4th weekend and say, oh, I really want to go get surgery next week. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It's not real. And the same thing happened in 1965 and 1963 when we did Medicaid, Medicare, like it never happens. There's no pent up demand, doesn't happen. So, Senator Brisport, on the other side of this issue, you had mentioned that some claims are going around about the impact of the New York Health Act. One is that it would be a job reducer in New York, and we're looking at health insurance jobs and maybe some ripple effects. How do you convince people that this is the right way to go when they may be looking at job losses in the state and some ripple effects that may affect them? I think first things first, it's important to mention that inside the uh, New York Health Act, there is a provision for funding for a, like a just transition for people who need to retrain or look for other jobs. But in a wider sense, it's about universal health care as a job creator, because once, you're in a, once your health care is no longer tied to your employer, it frees up your options. That's going to be great for people who want to freelance, start their own business, who, want, who are running a small business and struggling to bring on more people because of health care costs. So you can think of it as a job creator rather than a job killer. Well, I think there is going to be a lot of discussion on this moving forward, especially as the legislation gains more support in the legislature. But we do have to leave it there. Elizabeth Benjamin from the Community Service Society of New York and Senator Jabari Brisport, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. So we'll see how the legislature feels about that measure when they reconvene in January. But for now, it's all the time we have. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.